0: Good morning, everyone. It really is a good job. I'm not going to sing. <laughs> uh, last week, we reflected on Solomon's demise, his descent into spiritual freefall, which was caused by his blatant disobedience, the creeping compromise that took place in his life, and daily distractions. This morning, we're going to consider the demise of a whole nation and a city. And most of what we're going to look at today is quite Negative. There's not a lot in here to celebrate or get excited about. In fact, quite the opposite. And so the desire to be back in bed may become slightly overwhelming during these next 20 to 25 minutes, but there's been so much good stuff already in the service that I, that I hope you'll take something away from that. And then I have to admit that I, I found it really difficult to prepare for this morning. I really have struggled, and that may become apparent. And yet, if we're going to stick with the story, and if we're going to tell it as it is, as we have set out to do in 2011, then there will be days like this. Days whenever we wrestle with material that's bleak, that's depressing, that's uninspiring, and that's hopeless. And so, with that as a sort of disclaimer... I kind of really do need you this morning, if at all possible, to engage with me and stay with me for as long as you can. Because in our journey through the big story of the Bible, we have reached a real low point. A really low point in the history of Israel. There's a very definite sense that we've come to the end of the world as people knew it. The present world order is about to finish. And as we're about to discover, that's total, it's brutal, and it's seemingly irreversible. The ways have well and truly come off. And we're going to spend most of our time in the final chapters of Second Kings. It's a part of the Bible that, that many people find tedious. But before we come to some specifics, I want to do some big picture painting. Way back in 1 Samuel 8, the elders of Israel came to Samuel and they asked for, or rather they demanded a king. We want a king just like all the other nations have. And Samuel wasn't impressed at their request. God sought for what it was. It was a rejection of him as their king. And so God said to Samuel, look, Samuel, alone. This galls me in many ways. Give them what they want. And so Saul becomes the first king in Israel. The first monarch in what was a united kingdom with a small U. And Saul's relationship with God was relatively hollow. And so his reign ended badly. And David then took over. And he was an altogether better king But he made some stupid mistakes. Really poor choices. But the saving grace for David was he was known as a man after God's own heart. The third king was Solomon. As we heard last week, an extraordinarily wise man who started so well. And yet ended so badly. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took over. He quickly made some foolish decisions. And as a result, ten of the tribes rebelled. And the kingdom was split for the first time. And so you have north and south, Israel and Judah. Ten tribes were in place, two tribes in the other. And Israel then had 19 kings. Including Ahab, who we thought about and looked at last Sunday night, if you were here. All those kings were bad. They were evil to differing degrees. And as a result of blatant sin and apostasy, the northern kingdom was eventually destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And all the people there were taken, or many of them, into exile. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. The southern kingdom had 20 kings, or to be... More accurate, 19 kings and one queen. Some of those were good, e.g. Josiah, who Paul's already mentioned, and who we will be coming to in a moment. But most of them, just to quote scripture, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as you read lots of the rest of the Old Testament That is just something that occurs time and time again as you you engage more with these kings. And in the southern kingdom, eventually it lasted about another 140 years approximately. But finally, it was invaded by the Babylonians and the people were deported and carted off into exile. And as I say, as you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's really helpful to know, and and this is important and and this is why we are doing this big story, it's really helpful to know which prophets spoke into which context. (laughs) And so, for example, people like Jonah and Amos and Hosea, they all were written into the northern context to Israel. Whereas others, such as Joel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Daniel, they're all directly connected to the southern kingdom. Now, I thought it was really important just to do that, to give you a sort of like big picture view of what has been going on. And now what I want to do is look at the fall of the southern kingdom. The fall of Judah. And the straw that actually broke the camel's back. The king who in effect pushed God over the edge, so to speak, was the 14th king. He was Josiah's grandfather, as Paul mentioned. A guy called Manasseh. Now he became king When he was 12, he reigned, it says in 2 Kings, for 55 years. And if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 21, which is verse 394 in the Bibles in the pews, you actually read the catalogue of evil that he did. If you just glance down through verses 2 to 9, you discover just how messed up this guy was, including reaching a place where he sacrificed his own son. I mean, that's how bad things got. And at the end of verse 9, you read this, that Manasseh led the people astray to such an extent that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So this guy really did take the nation to a dark place. And God couldn't take it anymore. Just could not stomach it any longer and so via his prophets he speaks now look at verse 12 because this is what he says therefore this is what the lord the god of israel says i am going to bring such disaster on jerusalem and judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle Now, for those of you who have been sort of following this series, this is the second time we have encountered the prospect of tingling ears. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, God tells Samuel that he's about to do something in Israel that will cause the ears of everyone who hears about it to tingle. And that thing, that something was harsh. It involved judgment. It involved judgment on Eli's family, who, for example, were never going to see old age. Well, in 2 Kings 21, this tingling sensation that God speaks of is again an uncomfortable sensation. God is going to bring disaster on Jerusalem and Judah to such an extent that look at verse 13, what it says. God is going to wipe out Jerusalem as you wipe out a dish and turn it upside down. It's graphic imagery that God uses. Just like you wipe out a dish and turn it upside down, that's what I'm going to do to the southern kingdom. And listening to that, hearing that for the very first time was clearly unpleasant. And in terms of us as I've reflected on this, here and now, in our context, 2011, the prospect of God's impending judgment in our lives often has that same effect for some people. We all know that each one of us is destined to die. And after that, every one of us will face judgment. And for many people today, as they consider that, it's not something they like to hear. Their ears react. They tingle. And Manasseh's behaviour was more than God could take. In other words, the end was nigh. But before we rush to the last days... I did want to pause and consider one of the kings out of the final six who was quite possibly the best king ever. And Paul was right. It would have been so wrong, in a sense, to cover this journey through the Bible and not mention Josiah. Because he came to the throne after Manasseh and after Ammon, who was his father. And Ammon was just a chip off his dad's old block, so to speak. And Josiah so deserves a mention, particularly whenever you're doing a series all about the importance of God's word. And as Paul says, the one thing most people remember about Josiah is his age. He became king when he was eight. But the more striking phrase regarding Josiah is this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And central to what it meant to do right in the eyes of the Lord for Josiah was this rediscovery of the book of the law and his reaction to it. And whenever Josiah is presented with God's word, he engages with it passionately. He really personalizes this to the point where he cries. He cries as he hears God's word. He rips his robes. Because as Paul said, he realizes just how messed up things have become. And as he compares God's word to people's behavior, it breaks Josiah's heart. And so he gets everybody together. And by everybody, I mean everybody, because it says from the very least to the greatest. And what Josiah does is he just reads God's word to them. He just reads it to them, all of it. And as a result, the people, it says, pledged themselves to the covenant. They say, okay, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to keep his commands, his statutes, and his decrees. And we're going to do it with all our heart and with all our soul. And spilling out of that recommitment was a process of reform. So any articles that were made for other gods, they were burned. Idolatrous priests were done away with. Asherah poles were ground to powder altars to the starry hosts that were built by Manasseh, they were smashed to pieces. There was a major and an extensive reordering and realignment of authentic spirituality. And whenever people take God's word to heart like that, it has this potential to transform. It can transform an individual life and it can alter an entire society. It did here. And it still can do that, we believe, today. And when you get to the end of the list of the reforms that are in chapter 23, you detect a definite hint of hope. So look at verse 25. When we get to the whole end of this list of reforms, it says this. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him, who turned to the Lord as he did. With all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his strength. And as you read this story, if you didn't know the ending, and the problem is for so many of us, we do know the ending, but if you were to read this story at this point, you would think, hang on a minute, could there be a change in Judah's destiny? Is that a distinct possibility? Given Josiah's attitude and actions, is there a potential rewrite of the script? Is destruction and disaster maybe going to be avoided because of Josiah? And yet no sooner do you read verse 25, than the narrator brings you straight back down to earth with a massive bump as you read verse 26. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. Let me be really honest as I read scripture and history and engage with the Old Testament stories. When I read this and that verse particularly, it just seems wrong. Josiah did so much good in his 31 years. And yet, for what purpose? There will be no happy ending to the final outcome. There's no guarantee of a better or a renewed future. Despite Josiah's response to God's word, despite the social reform that he instigated, despite the fact that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, that one word, nevertheless, just pulls the rug from beneath your feet and just leaves you flat. At least it does for me. But what is truly remarkable And this is the bit I find find profoundly challenging about Josiah. Is he knew this would be the case. He knew this would happen. He knew that nothing, no amount of reform, irrespective of how comprehensive, was going to stop or halt the impending doom for Judah. And yet, he still chose to faithfully obey God in the present without any hope of future reward. Now just think about that for a moment. And I want you to look at this with me because in chapter 23, that's where you have the reading of the book. That's where you have all the social reform. But in chapter 22, before that happened, Josiah actually sent a delegation to a prophet to discover the fate of the nation. And Huldah, a female prophet... She wasted no time in clarifying the grim conclusion that lay ahead. Listen to her response. Second Kings chapter 22, 16 to 18. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster in this place and its people. According to everything written in the book of the king, the King Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my hang- anger will burn against them in this place, and my anger will not be quenched. God's anger will not be quenched. Full stop, end of sentence. No but ifs. And so word gets back to Josiah that God's wrath is, if you like, it's concoming. It's consuming. It's complete. It's certain. There's no get out clauses. There's no chance of God backing down or changing his mind. And yet what does Josiah do? He still does the right thing. He presses on. He gets the people together. He leads them through a process of renewed commitment. He knows that it won't make any eventual difference. He knows it won't save a nation. He knows it won't cool God's wrath. But here's the point. Josiah's faithfulness does not confuse obedience with pragmatism. Doing the right thing may not change anything. But Josiah believes he should do it anyway. Why? Because God demands it. God deserves it. And so one commentator has put it like this. Obedience without incentives is likely genuine. You see, I find that challenging. Because what is it that really stimulates me to be obedient to God? Is it the hope of a renewed future? Or is it because God demands it and deserves it? As one other person has commented. Josiah knew that the judgment upon Judah was sure to come, but he wanted to press ahead with the reformation of Judah anyway. In this he showed a diligence unmatched by any king before or after him. He wanted to go ahead with the reformation solely for the sake of the honor and the righteousness of the Lord. The Lord has a right to be served even if our service does not bring about our salvation. And as I say, that is for me so provocative. It's challenging words. But so is Josiah's obedience and faithfulness. He is a shining example of someone who was prepared to obey God's word, prepared to keep the faith, even when they could see no hope of a reward. And I wonder, could I do that? Could I do that? Here was a man who was just truly in love with God. What Scripture said about him is true. He just loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that is why Josiah is described as the best of all the kings. But there is a sense that he was a king come too late. If only he had been pre-Manasseh. If only. Maybe the story might have been so different. And so as we read on, we actually confront further evidence that there is virtually no hope. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 24. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command. In order to remove them from his presence. Because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done. Including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And the Lord was not willing to forgive. And it's a phrase, again, that as I read it, it shocks me. It it surprises me. The Lord was not willing to forgive. Do you remember this image? I'm sure some of you do. It was based on Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Or what about David's psalm that picks up these truths in 103? The Lord is gracious and compassionate. is slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And yet, and yet, and yet, here in 2 Kings 24, we find the God of Exodus 34, the God of Psalm 103, unwilling to forgive. And nothing, surely nothing, could be more frightening than whenever forgiveness is not an option. Thankfully, because of Jesus, it still is for us. But the question is, for how long? For Judah, for the southern kingdom, it's clear there's there's no way back. And with Nebuchadnezzar now, as you'll read in these verses, flexing his muscles, bearing down upon Jerusalem, it's only a matter of time. And after Josiah, there were four more kings. But depressingly written over all of their lives, each of their lives, is this sad, tiring refrain. He did evil in Yahweh's eyes. It's back to the same old. Despite all Josiah had done, it's back to the same old. See, there's nothing inspiring about evil. It's honestly tedious. Only holiness, only faithfulness, only righteousness has spice and bite. And that's why Josiah's story is worth celebrating. Whereas the stories of these final four kings just leaves you slightly bored. And the final king is a guy called Zedekiah. And his predecessor, had didn't reign for very long, but one of the only things he did was he handed Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, and the cream of Judah are carted off into exile. And so effectively, Zedekiah was just a puppet king. Just Nebuchadnezzar's puppet king. And after he stupidly or unwisely rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, that just about hammered home the final nail into Judah's coffin. And Nebuchadnezzar captured Zedekiah. And actually killed his two sons in front of him, made him watch it as he killed his two sons, and it was the last thing that Zedekiah actually saw because they and Nebuchadnezzar gouged out his eyes. And so the monarchy is now shattered. And with the monarchy shattered, Nebuchadnezzar just sends in his heavies who set fire to the temple of the Lord. They burn the royal palace. They burn every house. They burn every single important building to the ground. They wreck the city walls. And they finally carry into exile anyone else who remained of what was left of Jerusalem. And the only people who were allowed to stay were the poorest. And they were only allowed to stay in order to work the vineyards and the fields. And Nebuchadnezzar then sets up a kind of provisional government. And he sets it up eight miles outside of Jerusalem in a place called Mizpah. And he sets up a governor in charge of this, a guy called Gedaliah, who seems to be a Judean. And Gedaliah had his head screwed on to some extent, and so he issues some wise advice to those who are left in the area. He says, Listen, settle down, serve the king, and all will be well with you. He says, Look, take a bit of breathing space, recharge your batteries, and it'll go well with you. And for a while, it does. But then, for some reason, Ishmael, and nobody's quite sure why he did this, but he comes and he executes Gedaliah, along with any Jews and Babylonians that are there with him. And so the chance of any stability or any optimism is now well and truly gone. And so in verse 26 of chapter 25, you read this. At this... All the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled and noticed to where? To Egypt. Here are some of them back in the pre-Exodus place. Here's some of them back to where this had all started. It's symbolic and it's utterly tragic. But the question is, who's to blame for all of this? And it's clear from God's word that it's the people. Because they'd been offered life. God had offered them life, but they chose death. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 30, because these are pertinent. See, says God, I've set before you today life and death, prosperity and destruction, for I commanded you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, his decrees, and his laws. And then you will live, and you will increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. But, if your heart turns, if your heart turns away, and if you're not obedient, and if, you're not, and if you are drawn to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you certainly will be destroyed. You will not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And so as you read this story, you discover God says, listen, I invite you to life. Here's the way I want you to live it. But the people repeatedly chose death. And the interesting thing for me is that this offer still kind of exists today. The last verse of chapter 24 says this. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end he thrust them from his presence. And that is a truly chilling thought. That God reaches a point in time where he thrusts people from his presence. And as I understand God's word that remains a distinct possibility. And I know this is not popular in teaching, but this remains a distinct possibility, that there will come a point in time whenever hope will disappear. There is such a thing as too late with the God of the Bible. Now for each of us sitting here, that time hasn't come as yet, but it does highlight the importance of making an immediate decision. To say, listen, I'm going to choose life, God. I'm going to embrace the life that you offer. I'm going to choose obedience. I'm going to choose to love you with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. I am going to follow your ways. And countless biblical texts stress and affirm this, including many of the parables of Jesus. And therefore, my responsibility is to stress the urgency of that before it is too late. Because the story of Jerusalem and Judah could actually become our story in the sense that we may, it would seem, appear one day to find ourselves thrust from the presence of Almighty God. And that does not bear thinking about. And the reason that we still have the choice is because the big story didn't end at 2 Kings 25. God didn't walk away from all humanity at this point. There are still more chapters in the story. And therefore, thank God for all our sakes that our Essential Word series can continue.